All right, we can go ahead and get going here. According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. John chapter 7 will be our text this morning. John chapter 7, looking at the Feast of Tabernacles. It is a lengthy section, verses uh, 11 through 52, although we also bring in verse 2 and verse uh, 10 into some of the larger context here. The feast of the Jews, the feast of booths was near. Therefore, his brothers said to him, leave here and go into Judea so that your disciples also may see your works, which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. And the Lord turned him down on this. He tried to get across that his emphasis wasn't on self-promotion or publicity or any other such thing. He even contrasts that uh, this festival was something that was appropriate for them, but not for him. Your time is always opportune. My time has not yet fully come. So having said these things to them, he stayed in Galilee. But when his brothers had gone up to the feast, we read in verse 10, when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself also went up, not publicly, but as if in secret. And that's the very thing they accused him of, or they said, you don't want to be obscure. You don't want to be in secret. You want to make a big splash. And instead, he, uh, he does just the opposite of what they expect. He goes up very uh, low key, uh, under the radar, very quietly not uh, drawing attention to himself. So the Jews were seeking him at the feast and were saying, Where is he? And there was much grumbling among the crowd concerning him. Some were saying he is a good man. Others were saying, No, on the contrary, he leads the people astray. Yet no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews. So all of the debate that took place was all very hush-hush. It was all, there was a lot of whispering, a lot of grumbling, a lot of uh, consideration uh, and discussion, but they couldn't do so openly. They had to do so uh, real quietly. And, and we understand that. We understand the nature of persecution, the nature of affliction. In fact, uh, that's the world we live in, in the politically correct world we live in. There's a lot of conversations that you have to have some discernment about. You have to have them a little bit low-key. You've got to have them uh, not absolutely out in public because there's consequences. If... Uh, such things were to be heard by the wrong people. All right. Well, this is where we are. We began this a couple weeks ago, and uh, we're ready to pick up in uh, the aspect of the Lord's rebuke here. It's a long section. It's one that can take us some time. It goes all the way down through verse 52. And so there's a lot of back and forth. There are a lot of messages the Lord delivers, reaction on the part of the crowd. Leads to another message. More reaction. And uh, so we'll, we'll spend some good time with it here. Before we do today, though, let's take time for silent prayer, giving each believer the opportunity to equip yourself with the Holy Spirit. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for your faithfulness. We rejoice, Father, that your faithfulness has provided for us with one more opportunity to study the living and abiding Word of God. We don't know how short the time is, Father. We, we simply live one day at a time expecting that today is the day that we're going to hear the trumpet. 
So, Father, we pray on this final opportunity to assemble that you would give us concentration, open the eyes of our understanding, give us ears to hear and a heart to understand. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, let me go ahead and get our slideshow running. We spent some time last week doing some of the geography, and uh, we may pick up some more of that here today as well. One thing I did not show you, I showed you some of the interactive maps of the temple precincts and things that, uh, that are available through Libronics. There's also a Bible atlas that's available online in PDF format, uh, and you can Google it or look for it by the Access Foundation Bible Atlas. I recommend the website with caution. The, their Bible materials are excellent and good maps and good material there, but it's a website that also has uh, some pretty extensive uh, Quran information on Islam and, and that. So I normally don't recommend the website to people unless I, I know that they're going to pay attention to the Bible stuff and ignore the ignore the Muslim stuff. Anyway, uh, their Bible atlas is actually very well uh, put together. And as we look at the life and ministry of Jesus, the uh, temple, there were some good... Uh, maps and diagrams here of the temple. Now, it is um, daytime rather than evening, and so some of these might be a bit lighter and too small to actually see. So when you get your own PDF on your own computer screen, you can then zoom in. I think Control-Z lets you zoom and... uh, get a good look at it. Let's see. There is a zoom feature. Control M, not Control Z. Control L lets you look at it in full screen mode. And then Control Z, we want to magnify two hundred percent. How's that sound? Anyway, the neat, uh, the neat features of the maps are being able to kind of visualize the different uh, locations, in particular the nature of the temple and how it sat here on uh, Mount Zion or how it sat there on uh, what's called today the Temple Mount with the valley to the east, the valley to the west, the Mount of Olives a little bit further there to the east. And uh, if you don't periodically review it and refresh in your mind, then you'll get confused between the the Jezreel Valley, the Hinnom Valley, the, the Tyropenean uh, Valley, and so forth. And so it's kind of help, helpful for us to fix in our mind the territory, the geography of the, of the place. Now, in the temple precincts, the area that we have right here, um, Jesus stands up in the midst of the temple and begins to teach. This is why we wanted to try to fix in our minds how it was laid out, where Jesus might have been. It it wasn't laid out like a church today would be laid out where you walk in the entrance and then there's an auditorium and there's Sunday school rooms and things. We say, well, how did Jesus stand up and teach? Did did they give him the pulpit because he was such a respected rabbi? Or did they give him... Well, they didn't have a pulpit. They didn't have a primary auditorium. The main feature of the temple was not to sit down and hold Bible class. The main feature of the temple was to offer animal sacrifices and to sprinkle the, the blood of the sacrificial lamb before the veil. Uh, there was Bible class being taught that the, the purpose of the Levites by and large was to be teachers of the law. And those were done in some of the courtyards outside of the temple or around the temple in the temple precincts. So as we read here that uh, in the midst of the feast, verse 14, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. 
when it says into the temple, that could be anywhere in the temple grounds. It doesn't have to be inside the holy place or inside the, the holy of holies. He, he was not a Levite. He couldn't have even entered into that portion of the temple. But he could have certainly been in the, uh, the, the court of the Jews. could have been in the women's court. could have been in the court of the Gentiles. Any of those precincts around, uh, anywhere within the walls as you see them, uh, as you see them there. I might even zoom in a little bit more. I don't know if there's a maximum to this or not, but it's kind of fun. The uh, That's 400%. And Mr. Dowd actually has a gate. Um, okay, I'm teasing. But there was an archaeologist at Warren's Gate. That's right. There's an archaeologist who uh, dug that gate up. A lot of these things get named after the, the archaeologists that dig them up. So he could have been anywhere within those walls. Um near one of the gates or near uh, the even within the outer territories. The um, section right in here, the women's courtyard could have been in here in the Jewish courtyard, could have been out here in the Gentile area, could have been just, you know, find a corner over here by the sheep gate, wherever. But he found a spot, set apart, began to teach. And obviously he has his own disciples there that are there to listen. But then others would start to eavesdrop and listen in. Oh, here's a rabbi. He's teaching his students. And they'd stop and actually listen on uh, to hear what it was that he uh, that he had to say. Okay. Anyway, I wanted to share that. We didn't get to that last week. How do I get out of this? Escape. It's a great button. The escape button. You notice that? All right. Now for our slideshow. Life of Christ. LaRosa always catches me when I click on the wrong one. All right, Feast of Tabernacles. The points of study we've brought to so far have brought us down through point three, and we're ready today at five. But before we get to four and five, we have some subpoints on three. I want to make sure we're not missing some of the issues there. So uh, Jesus followed his unbelieving brothers to the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, we pointed out how they were not believers. We read that in verse 5. Not even his brothers were believing in him. And yet they were religious. They're not regenerate, but they are religious. They have an interest in taking part in the culture of their festivals and their feasts. And this is the time of year where they make their pilgrimage. They, they stand before the Lord at the temple. They bring their animal sacrifices. They can participate in the external ritual. They're not even saved. All right. And uh, I think there's a lot of doctrine, a lot of lessons in that with people you know and I know that they go through external rituals, they go through the motions, they come to church, they give their offering, whatever they do, uh, what the colonel used to call the nod to God routine, and they think that that counts for something. Well, the brothers go on up and uh, he follows as if it were in secret. And they'd been dismissive of that. They were dismissive. They thought that he wasn't on the, the large enough stage that, uh, you know, he could do some pretty neat stuff. He could do miracles and things. Wow. You know, he ought to go down and make a big splash. And that wasn't his, uh, that wasn't his priority. Secrecy was in order. Secondly, uh, the Jews were seeking and the crowds were grumbling. And there's a distinction to be made between the Jews and the crowds. Now, we'll be introduced to another group. In verse 25, and those are the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the people of Jerusalem. Now, they are mixed in with the crowds, but they're not, and they're, they're a part of the crowds. They're kind of in both groups because they know who the Jews are. They know who the religious leaders are. They live there in their town. And uh, they kind of serve as a, 
and in between, between the Jews and the crowds. And they kind of, they're almost, as spectators, they're almost amazed to observe the reaction of the different groups. So we'll, uh, we'll break those down. We gave you the vocabulary for Jews and crowds. I won't go back into that. Point three, at some point midweek, on the third day, fourth day, we don't know, it was a week-long feast. At some point midweek, Jesus taught a public Bible class. He just couldn't keep it in anymore. <laughs> I just have to think that, it, we don't know what his motivation was here, but in the midst of the feast, he went up and started to teach. And we know that his teaching was different from the scribes and the Pharisees. We know that they had a different mode to their teaching, was without authority. He spoke with authority, uh, delivering the message of God the Father. And he got people's attention as he began to teach. Now in this, uh, we talked about the temple and some of the things there. I'm going to pass by that. The feast was a week-long event. We read that from Leviticus 23. The reaction was interesting. Shocked at what kind of teacher he was. The Jews were shocked that Jesus could be educated. How does he know his letters? How does he know so much? Because he didn't go to their schools. And as we look at it here in verse 15, the Jews then were astonished. And astonished is kind of a lame way of saying that. They were shocked. They were beside themselves. Astonished, saying, Has this man, and the play on words here is neat, become learned, having never been educated? It, it's nonsensical in their way of thinking. How does he know his letters? How has he become educated? The first phrase actually, oiden, gramata, how does he know his letters? If, if you are lettered, if you are educated, uh, we use similar idioms today. And it's not just simply gnosko, and it's not even epigonosko, it's oida. How does he have the full, comprehensive, and digested knowledge of his letters, of his learning, that he is a very uh, educated man, having never been schooled. And here we have the perfect uh, participle of, of Manthana, having not been a student, meaning not one of their students. He has not gone through the rabbinic schools there, or what would later become rabbinic schools there in Jerusalem, either the dominant ones being Hillel or Shammai. There were others, but those were the two dominant. And they were always in competition with one another and and as long as you were in one of those accepted schools then you were um it was okay to dispute amongst themselves but if you were in one or the other schools there was no question about it that you were actually orthodox that you were legitimate you were normal uh you were part of the accepted uh realm of of academia in that day and uh and different things there so since he was not part of either school and this is where the trap came in when they, if you hold your finger there and you kind of, let's just glance over to, it's easy to spot in, in Matthew 18, or actually Matthew 19. Matthew chapter 19. Some Pharisees, verse 3, some Pharisees came to Jesus asking, attesting him and asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And what they're doing here, yes, they're using divorce as a realm, uh, but what they're really doing is they are thrusting upon him one of the hot-button issues, one of the debate issues between these two dominant schools I'm talking about, the school of Hillel and the school of Shammai. And one was very, and said, you know what, for any reason. They looked back to the law and they said, you know what, Moses said that if he finds displeasure in her, well then, they had a very broad 
loose, easygoing understanding. Well, what does it mean to be uh, find displeasure in your wife? You know, and that could be pretty pretty wide open. If if there's any anything that displeases you, well, that could be you know she burns a meal, and that displeases you, and even that was accepted by this liberal school that said, you know, even a burned meal. They used that as an example. A burned meal can bring displeasure to the husband. And so Moses permits the divorce. Anyway, the, the, the crux of the issue there, and he, he addresses divorce and he addresses the issue, but if you don't understand the isagogics of the passage, if you don't go into the background into where this debate was raging or how it was waging and what the nature was of these two schools, I think you lose out on a significant um, the significant impact of, uh, of that particular text. Same thing that goes here. Having not been schooled, having not been educated, having not been a Mathetes disciple. See, now you and I understand that discipleship is grounded in abiding in the Word of God. That if you abide in my Word, then you are truly my disciples. And so as such, any born-again believer, if you are regenerate, if you are born again and you are dwelling in the Word of God, you're a disciple. And the particular teacher you follow is irrelevant. The particular church you fellowship in is, is not pertinent to the discussion. You can be a disciple of Jesus Christ in any church under any pastor. If you are abiding in the Word of God, if you and your Christian walk are living abiding daily in the, in the Word of God. That's the qualification for a true disciple. So, not in these guys' books. In these guys' books, the only way to be a true Mathetes, disciple, is to be a part of the structured system under these, under these schools. And if you're not enrolled in these schools, you're not a disciple. And it, it's shocking to them that someone could actually learn doctrine apart from them. They're the only ones that can teach you uh, as far as they're concerned. So they are shocked. The term educated, as I said again, is oiden gramata, and without being schooled from Montano. And this is where I was going to give you some of the vocabulary and the, the different terms there as we were uh, running out of time. It, it comes up again in Acts chapter 4. Join me there. Later, after they put the Lord to death, and he's resurrected and ascended, and he's in glory at the Father's right hand, well, now it's the disciples' turn. And Peter and, and John are the examples here in Acts 4.13. Now, there's conflict already. There's been conflict in chapter 2, conflict in chapter 3. And um, more ministry takes place here in chapter 4. And you'll note... Uh, Chapter 4 of Acts, as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. See, that's a problem. That Bible teaching has just got to stop. And as far as the Sadducees are concerned, if you're teaching about the resurrection, that's just flat out heresy. We want no part of that. Sadducees rejected the resurrection. That was viewed as being a Pharisee quirk. And uh, and so forth. So they laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. So when the police come and arrest you for teaching truth, what are you going to do? You're going to agree to uh, go with a gag order if they tell you that uh, you can't teach uh, Romans one anymore because it's hate speech. 
and you have to uh, you have to teach the uh, acceptance of, of homosexuality or any other sin. If you have to modify your Bible teaching to satisfy the government, what are you going to do? So they put him in jail, uh, but too late. Genie's out of the bottle. The uh, message has been taught. Many of those who had heard the message believed. See, the word of God is powerful, and I love it. So the next day, the, the rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together, and they uh, they have this uh, this uh, concern by what verse seven by what power what name have you done this? And Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, and he goes on to tell I'll tell you the name. There's only one name, and here's the name: it's Jesus of Nazareth, the one that you uh, put to death. <laughs> there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. So it's a powerful message. And he's not flinching and he's not he's not in any way intimidated by the venue that he finds himself in. The Holy Spirit empowerment is a supernatural empowerment that is designed to work through a spiritual gift in a ministry as the Lord opens the door. Now look at the reaction in verse 13. As they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uh, illiterate morons, Illiterate idiots is the term. Translated, uneducated and untrained men. Fishermen. Galilean fishermen. You look at these guys and you think, who's this? You wouldn't think, here's a Bible scholar. Here's someone that knows their doctrine. Here's someone that knows the scriptures. You look at them and you say, hey, there's a blue collar fisherman. All right. And uh, and that, <laughs> which is why it's, it's, it's so neat. It's neat to sneak up on people. It's neat to, to uh, surprise people because by and large, humanity is very much wrapped up in external appearances in, uh, in, in how they evaluate people and how they place people on a scale or how they uh, esteem whatever a person's social standing is or whatever a person's education level is. And all of that, especially in this town, this town's big on, on the upper level graduate courses and, and degrees and all the rest. And they look at a guy and they'd be pretty dismissive. You know, a guy like Gary Williams, you look at Gary Williams and say, man, who's this guy? And then he'd, he'd surprise some folks. I love going places with Gary. We'd go into a restaurant, we'd go into some place, and, and he'd start talking, and, and all of a sudden people would step back if he was talking doctrine. And uh, he'd ask somebody a question about a particular passage of Scripture, and they'd kind of do a double take and go, wow, you, you know what you're talking about. <laughs> Where'd you learn the Scriptures kind of thing? Or you get a guy like John uh, Williams out there driving trucks and delivering, making food deliveries and different things. And, and uh, I saw him, in fact, it's happened to me twice now, just out there in public and, and uh, run across John Williams on the street. And you wouldn't know because he's, he's working hard. He's serious. He's, uh, he's, a couple times I've seen him, he's pushing this hand cart and taking food off his truck and putting it into this thing and working hard, right? Not that he looks mean or ugly or whatever, but he's serious and he's working. He's concentrated and whatever. And you wouldn't think of this, this gruff guy and his big meat hook hands and whatever. And, and uh, you wouldn't know how uh, transformed he becomes with those big meat foot meat you know, hook hands, start playing the piano and singing and all the rest, because all you're looking at is the external appearances. All right. Same thing here. These Galilean fishermen, they are illiterate 
morons, illiterate idiots. And uh, vocabulary there very similar to the vocabulary we have in John 7.15. Pull this up again for you. Whoops. Trying to go to Jonah. There's no Jonah 7.15. All right, John 7.15. How has this man become learned, having never been educated? And if you want the uh, Strong's numbers on these, that's what I was trying to do last week, was give you the Strong's numbers, and then we found an error in one of them. <clears throat> and so, grammata, it's a plural of grammar. If you have more than one grammar, you have grammata. Grammar refers to a letter. Number 1121. G-R-A-M-M-A refers to a letter. If it's used in plural, it means letters or it means writing in general. Anything written, any written document. It's um, where we get grammar and grammatical and terms like that in the English language. Um, so in the plural, it refers to letters plural. And what, what, what do you get when you put a bunch of letters together? You get words. You put a bunch of words together, you get... Uh, pieces of literature. And so uh, somebody that is knowledgeable about literature, we would say they're educated. <clears throat> but he has not been a disciple. And the verb there is manthano. If you want the Strong's number, it's number 3129, manthano. To be a learner, to be a student. See, it's interesting. Many of the uh, of the scribes and the Pharisees. This one I want to get across. If you haven't picked up on it yet, we've only been doing Life of Christ for, what, four years now? If you haven't picked up on it yet, catch on today, okay? Many of the scribes and the Pharisees called themselves students, but they weren't. They were not desiring to actually learn the truth. What they were were followers, and they were educational followers of preeminent educational, um, I don't even want to call them teachers. Let's call them educators. All right. And the goal was to be a prize follower of a prize educator. That meant, all, that meant everything. If you could sit at the feet of Gamaliel, that meant something. Because Gamaliel didn't just take any, any bump off the log. He took the sharpest he could get a hold of. And, and he took the, the six best, ten best, however much he had time for, and took the best of the best, and the ones who couldn't get at the feet of Gamaliel went to the next best. If they couldn't get at his feet, they went to the next best. And so the goal was to sit at the feet of the best. And then if you were in that group, the goal was to be tops in your class. That's what the Apostle Paul was. Advancing beyond many of his contemporaries. All right, A Hebrew of the Hebrews, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, sitting at the feet of Gamaliel. So that was the goal. And if you were first in your class for, uh, to the first teacher in the land, then you had that ranking. And you were in position in your own day then to be the heir. To take actually the seat after Gamaliel passes on. All right? That meant everything. It was all about status. And it wasn't about it wasn't about actually learning the doctrine, learning the scriptures. 
It wasn't about what we would say learning the, the law. Now, they memorized it. The, the best students would memorize the Torah. Can you imagine? Memorizing the whole thing. But not to digest the content. Many of them were unregenerate. Not to digest the content, but to memorize the, the text and then what Gamaliel said about the text. See? And so it isn't about whether these believers grew in the doctrine. It's about, did they memorize the text and could they recite the, the rabbi? Could they recite Gamaliel? All right? That's what it came down to. And the goal was that prestige title of rabbi and then being able to, uh, to have your own school. Uh, the, the rabbis then had their own picking order based on the quality of students that they could gather and, and all the rest. So that's the John 7 text. The um, Acts 4 is very similar language. Um, they were ah grammatoi. You want vocabulary on that as well. The singular is ah grammatos, number 62. Ah grammatos, number 62. A-G-R-A-M-M-A-T-O-S. Put an alpha in front of grammatos, and it means you're unlettered, illiterate. Uneducated or illiterate. And it's tied together with idiotes, the study that we gave you back in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Idiotes, uneducated, unskilled, untrained, layperson, or amateur, number 2399. Those of you that want to pursue word studies with the Strong's numbers. All right. Now, was Jesus uneducated? Absolutely not. Were Peter and John uneducated? Were they untrained? Absolutely not. They were very trained. They were very educated. But they were grounded in the scriptures. They were not grounded in the politics. Big difference. All right, point four then. Let's get a look at verses 16 through 18. Back in John 7, Jesus explained why his credentials were incomparable. He had better credentials than they did. Here they are examining his credentials. Jesus explained why his credentials were incomparable and asks how the Jews could be so well educated and yet unemployed. He uses some pretty shocking language for them. He asks how the Jews could be so well educated and yet unemployed. Now, I, I took the biblical vocabulary and I brought it across into our modern terms. And you'll see what I mean as we explain this, particularly in verse 19. Well-educated, yet unemployed. It's actually uh, another circumstance that's pretty common in modern times. People can be highly educated, even over-educated, to the point where um, their employability is a bit uh, hampered in some respects. All right, let's look at verses 16 through 19. Again, the shock in verse 15, how has this one, this man, become learned? So Jesus answered them. He's going to tell them how he's so learned. My teaching is not mine, but is his who sent me. See, he is so learned because he has not lost track of whose word this is. <laughs> it's not Gamaliel's word. It's not Hillel's word. It's not Shammai's word. It's God the Father's word. 
It is not mine, but it is his who sent me. If anyone is willing to do his will, a key component to actually growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is the volitional humility to not only learn the word, but actually live what you learn. If anyone is willing to not learn, do. If you're willing to do, you're the greatest student imaginable. problem with the Pharisees is that they learned and learned and learned, but didn't do. As we see in verse 19, none of you does the law. Did not Moses give you the law? Yet none of you carries out the law. If you're a hearer and not a doer, the book of James says, you are self-delusional. So my teaching is not mine, but it is his who sent me. His credentials are incomparable. They might have sat at the feet of Gamaliel, who sat at the feet of Hillel. He was the leading voice in the school of Hillel because he was the protege. He was the number one student of Hillel. Hillel the elder. No, Hillel the younger. I think that's right. I'm a little rusty on the order on those men. And the Apostle Paul, had he not had the Damascus Road experience, could have been the next generation. Probably would have been, given his zeal and his fervor and his passion. If there was anyone that could have been in his way, I'm sure uh, Saul would have dealt with that. (laughs) Uh, He was not above murder. And uh, to, to climb and claw to that top spot, I wouldn't put anything past Saul of Tarsus. So my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone is willing to do his will, and this is an if, third class condition, maybe you will, maybe you won't. And anyone, uh, the the language of, of uncertainty here, but anyone, meaning that there's a potential for the disciple if you have that motivation. If anyone is willing, this expresses uh, fellow, this expresses the will, the desire, the volition, the motivation of the human being involved to do his will, the father's will. And he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. The believer that's humble to teaching, that's obedient, that's willing to go, uh, willing to pursue the, 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 the word of God in his life will be able to identify with clear and accurate teaching. I have no doubt of that. We, we, obse- we observe that in, in, uh, in this day and age with folks that, that they're hungry. They don't know what they're hungry for. They just know that they're not being fed in their churches. They're not being fed. They're not satisfied. They know there's something out there. And they come into a church like this and they say, wow, there's actually teaching. If you're positive, so God the Father rewards that positive volition. This is a great passage for positive volition. He will know. He's able to identify. The sheep know the voice of their shepherd. A hungry believer knows food when he smells it, when he tastes it. Verse 18. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. That is a summary statement for what the Pharisee religious or educational structure was all about. Speaking from yourself. Seeking your own glory. But he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him... He is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. The humble teacher is teaching the word of God, saying, Thus saith the Lord. And it's not his wisdom that you're relying on. It's simply what God has revealed. If you reject it, you've got to take it up with the Lord. 
So these are the credentials. And and who are they to examine his credentials? To evaluate his his pedigree, his educational pedigree, or his, his doctrine? Who are they to examine that? Which is interesting. Right now, Schaefer Seminary is going through, they're uh, trying to get um, accreditation. And I find that interesting. I have my personal view on that, but they don't answer to me, they answer to Jesus Christ. But I find it interesting. Where do they go for the accreditation? And who accredits them? And who evaluates their curriculum? Who evaluates their teachers? Who evaluates their lesson plans? This comes back to the lawsuit of the state of Texas against Tyndale Seminary. They uh, sued Tyndale and the liberal court here in Austin uh, upheld it and uh, assessed Tyndale a massive $200,000 fine everything else, saying that Tyndale was giving theological training and issuing theological degrees. And the State Board of Education said, you can't do that. We have not approved your curriculum. We have not approved your uh, professors, we have not approved your institution. You're not an accredited institution. And Tyndale said, we don't want to be an accredited institution. Go away. <laughs> and the state of Texas says, we're not going to go away. If you're going to issue these degrees, then we, we consider that fraud and, and we're going to sue you. That if you're not accredited, you can't issue degrees. And so um, they say what they were saying was that they were actually defending the public. See, now, I believe the government has a role, for instance, if, um, if there's a, a quack doctor out there who's not a doctor but says he's a doctor, who says he has a medical degree, who is hurting people with non-medical procedures and whatnot, passing himself off as a doctor, yeah, the government's got a role to say, wait a minute. They can, they can regulate medical schools, law schools. They can regulate secular issues. But see, <clears throat> when you get into theology, government has no role in evaluating a theology or uh, overseeing a curriculum or determining whether... And there's no fraud about it. Like, like someone with a Tyndale Seminary uh, PhD is going to pass himself off as what? In any event, fortunately, the Texas Supreme Court threw it out, ruled in favor of Tyndale and said the government of the state of Texas has no business telling Tyndale how to teach theology. Not only can we not accredit them, we we're not equipped to accredit them. How do we evaluate what they're teaching? It's not the role of government. It's like these guys trying to evaluate Jesus Christ. Who are they to evaluate Jesus Christ? They're going to stand before Jesus Christ someday, hopefully. If they're regenerate, they'll stand before him. If they're unregenerate, they'll stand before him too. Either way, and here they are evaluating him. I find it amazing. All right. But then he goes on to ask how they can be so well educated and yet unemployed. He says in verse 19, Did not Moses give you the law? This is one of these leading questions. This is one of those questions that expects the obvious answer. Like, why are you even asking me this question? This is a question that only has one way to answer it because you know the answer the guy wants by the way he expresses the question. Right? Like when the wife says, you're not going to watch another basketball game, are you? That, that's a question that pretty much has one answer. You know the answer she wants by the way she phrased it. Well... 
No. Longhorns are out, so why, why watch anymore? Besides, baseball season just got started. <laughs> There's 162 games coming up. So, did not Moses give you the law? Well, yeah. Okay. Unless you're a modern skeptic and you don't think Moses wrote the law. But Jesus thought Moses wrote the law, so I believe Jesus. Did not Moses give you the law? And yet, and here's where he says, you're all unemployed. None of you do it. None of you do it. Now, telling a Pharisee that he doesn't do the law is like telling Tiger Woods that he can't play golf or that he doesn't play golf. Say, you're not even a golfer. How do you do that? How do you tell Tiger Woods that he's not a golfer? These guys thrive on what they think is doing the law. In their mind, they're they're in the seat of Moses. In their mind, they are the law. They do it, they live it, they eat it, breathe it, sleep it, and they use it to control other people's lives. Be like telling Hillary Clinton she's not a politician. And not just her, any of them. So you're not a politician. Well, yes, they are. They, that's, that's their realm. He says, none of you do it. None. Zero. None of them do the law. Now, a lot of them had external observance. They all did. A lot of them had, um, even his unbelieving brothers were there observing. Didn't the law tell them, go to Jerusalem for, uh, for tabernacles? And what did they do? They went to Jerusalem for tabernacles. They're doing the law. Just like some people today do church. They're not doing church. They're not obeying what the Father has given them. And I'll explain what I mean by that here in a second. Simply... Observing external forms is not the reality. That makes sense? So he says here, none of you carries out the law. You're all unemployed. Imagine studying, 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 and yet never doing anything with what you've studied. It, it's, it's, it boggles the mind. And, and, um, and I don't know, there's, there's certain things. If... if um, there's more statistics out there, too, about people in the workforce today, whatever they are, generally speaking, they're not doing what they went to school for. Whatever it is, maybe they're they're an engineer, but they went to school for something else or they're, you know, what have you. Just what they're presently doing doesn't match what they went to school for. And in this case, with the Pharisees, they're constantly, constantly, constantly in the study of the law, but they're not doing anything with the law. In fact, they're breaking the law. They're, they're, uh, even now, as we speak, they're, they're plotting murder. Doesn't that seem to violate the law? <laughs> Isn't there a, a, there's a, there's a verse in there, right? In the, in the Mosaic law that says, thou shalt not murder. That's right. They're not following the law. They're not doing the law. But in their mind, they are. Because in their mind, it's not murder. In their mind, they're putting a heretic to death. Which, in their mind, is keeping the law. So, 
See, it, only the, the twisted insanity of reversionism can call good evil and evil good, can actually commit a sin and say, oh, I'm, this is the will of God. This is the will of God. A man that's convinced that he uh, married the wrong woman and so he's going he's gonna, to he's gonna divorce her in the will of God so he can marry his right woman. And talk himself and try to talk other people into saying, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm in God's will. This is the right thing to do. No, you're divorcing your wife. <laughs> All right. Anyway, people will talk themselves into it to, to tell themselves why it's not that bad or why it's actually right for them to do this. So um, vocabulary. Well, not so much vocabulary. Um, before I get to my sub points, there is a um, another text I wanted to read here. And, oh, I should have bookmarked it. Let's see. Do not Moses give you the law, yet none of you carries out the law. Why do you seek to kill me? I found a reference to this in, um, let me bring this over. Um... This is why I should have bookmarked it. It wasn't Legends of the Jews, I don't think. Nope. All right, I'll find it for you for next week because this phrase, did not Moses give you the law, yet none of you carries it out, no one of you does it. How do you do the law? I thought it was a good quote. How do you do the law? Most of the law is a series of do nots. <laughs> right? Do not murder. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not have false gods. And, and most of it is thou shalt not. In fact, of the Ten Commandments, eight of them are, are thou shalt nots. Shalt not have other gods before me and so forth. Uh, what are the positives? There's only two. That's not in the Ten Commandments, but the Ten Commandments, you're right, that's a positive, that's one we'll get to in a moment. But observe the Sabbath day and keep it holy and honor your father and mother. Those are the two positive commandments out of the Decalogue. Um, the, can find the book I was just reading last night. Hmm. That's why I said, oh, I don't need a bookmark. I can remember where, where to find that. And then I went to sleep. Okay. Holy Spirit didn't want to talk. So point A. No one carries out the law. Now, even though the law <coughs> has all those negatives, <coughs> six, <coughs> 613 commandments in the law, 
most of which are negatives, prohibitions, thou shalt not. <clears throat> you can summarize the law with two points. So turn over to Matthew 22, and we realize that Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 19.18 are the two summary statements. All right, well, you may, uh, the Lord, let me get through 11 more minutes. We'll see. No, I used to have one allergy season. And a few years later, I added a second allergy season. <clears throat> now I think I've added a third. It used to be January was the only ugly month. And then a few years ago, I noticed that uh, <clears throat> October, November wasn't all that great either. Now uh, I'm starting to spot March and April. <clears throat> Pretty soon, if I develop an allergy in all 12 months, is that divine guidance? <clears throat> no, it's just suffering for Jesus. Suffering for Jesus is the hardship of <clears throat> ministering in Texas. All right, Matthew 22. See, when you see the self-righteousness here, <clears throat> the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, so they were pretty excited. Yeah, way to stick it to those Sadducees. Now it's our turn. We'll get them. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment? What, uh, which is the great commandment of the law? If you can summarize the law into one great point, boil it down to one commandment, how do you follow it? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. See, if you fulfill that, you fulfill all 619. Because any one that you break means that you're not loving the Lord God. When you commit, <clears throat> when you steal or commit adultery, whatever you do, you're, you're loving yourself more than you're loving God because God said don't do it. Your flesh wanted to do it. So you said, hey, <laughs> I'm going to do it. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's interesting. They, the lawyer only asked him the first part about one question. And Jesus gave him two. He gave him the great and foremost commandment. But then he added to it commandment number two right behind it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. See, love for God, motivating virtue, becomes the love for man fellow brothers and sisters, even your enemies, loving your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. You can summarize the whole Old Testament, the law and the prophets. That's Genesis to Malachi or Genesis to Chronicles in the Hebrew book order. Summarize it in those two commandments. You can relate it over to Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 19.18 if you'd like. And so, based on these verses, are the Pharisees doing the law? No, they're seeking to kill him. <laughs> Do they love the Lord their God? They really don't. They love their religious system. They love the respectful greetings in the marketplaces. They love the chief seats of honor at the banquets. 
They love the, uh, the recognition of their peers. Basically, they love how smart they are and how they can impress people with what they know, how much of the law they can memorize. As I said, the whole thing, some of them, I, I think probably Paul was one of those, memorized the whole thing. Genesis to Malachi, all right? Or Genesis to Chronicles, if you give it the Hebrews order, the Hebrew book order. But they don't love the Lord their God. And they're not serving Him. They're not um, loving their neighbor. They, in fact, are enslaving their neighbor with their religious system. So <clears throat> rather than carrying out the law, they, uh, they're doing just the opposite. They're seeking to, to kill him. They're seeking to murder him. How can they be so righteous when they are intending murder? Well, there's only one way you can do that. Convince yourself it's not murder. Convince yourself that you're obeying God for doing it. Because God said to uh, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. God said to put the, uh, the uh, um, false teacher to death. All right, so they've convinced themselves they're serving God. <clears throat> Everything that Saul of Tarsus did, dragging men and women, throwing them into prison, all that, he was convinced that he was serving God. No different from the Muslim fanatics today. They're convinced they're serving Allah. And they are. They're serving their God. They're doing what their God told them to do. And so they're not, they're not uh, radicalized. They're faithful. Let's just call them faithful. They may not carry out very cross. I you know, to play very well on Fox News when they try to call them radicalized uh, jihadists. How about just faithful or devout? They're, they're faithful to their text, faithful to their God. Uh, I don't think our postmodern, uh, multicultural, uh, moral relativist society wants to handle that at this point. <clears throat> All right. Why do you keep? Uh, why do you seek to kill me? He asked them here. None of you. Well, let me get back to John. John seven. None of them were doing the law. They were living their lives. Um, let me back up here. Do not Moses give you the law, yet none of you carries out the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered him, you have a demon. Who seeks to kill you? <laughs> All right. They, uh, Moses gave them the law. They're not doing the law. Instead, they're intending murder. And the crowd is, is absolutely shocked. The, um, and, and it's interesting. I, I think that the, uh, the Pharisees here... What's the passage where Paul talks about as to the righteousness which is found in the law, blameless? Is that Philippians? Philippians 4? Philippians 2? Philippians 3, 6. Philippians 3, 6. Circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee. That kind of says it all. As to the law, a Pharisee. Somebody that was totally dedicated to observing the external requirements of the law. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. That's how he proved how much he loved God. Or he thought he loved God. 
as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. Absolutely perfect as far as the law's righteousness is concerned. He's like this boastful, rich young ruler. He says, I've done it all. I've done all 613 commands. And Jesus says, well, one thing you haven't done, you haven't given away all your money. Now, is that one of the 613 commands? <laughs> Not in there, but see, the point is, there's always something. No one measures up. No one is 100% perfect other than Jesus Christ himself. As to the righteousness, which is in the law found blameless, but yet what value is that? Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss. It's loss because it's not true righteousness. The only true righteousness is that which comes by grace through faith in Jesus Christ when God imputes his righteousness to our account, where it's reckoned to us as righteousness. Otherwise, all our righteous deeds are as filthy rags. Measure up to the law on an external basis, filthy rags. So uh, he says, I count them but rubbish in verse 8. If you want to learn a Greek curse word, you can look that word up. But anyway. This is the nature of it. And this is why Jesus says, you're not doing the law. You're not doing the law. You have this religion, but you're not doing the law. Because the law is to love God. The law is not, it's uh, not, in terms of Hosea 6.6, 6, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. It's the heart attitude that loves God the Father, not the external ritual and how many, how many throats you slit. Animal throats. All right. All right. Point five, then the crowds are shocked by his statement in verse 20. You're out of your mind. You have a demon. Today, we might say you're. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. You're 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 nuts. You're you're on drugs or you're what, you know, something like that. We'd have an idiom today about what are you smoking crack? We used to say that in the jail a lot. <clears throat> you have a demon who seeks to kill you. The crowds don't realize this. Although it's interesting, when he says, you have a demon, the crowds are actually communicating something they heard from their leaders. The leaders had previously accused him of having a demon. Remember that? In fact, I give that to you under point A. They are clearly under the Jewish religious leaders' influence. Back in Matthew chapter 9 and again in chapter 11, on two occasions, they said that he was demon-possessed. In fact, that's how they said he was casting out demons, because he himself was full of demons. And they're wrong. They're lying. It's not true, but they've said it. They've said it often. They've said it repeatedly. And now the people, it's, maybe they weren't in agreement before. Maybe they didn't believe it before. But now all of a sudden, with Jesus saying that they sought to kill him, now all of a sudden, first thing off their lips is, you do have a demon. <laughs> it's like, wow, they were right. You are a demoniac. You know, it's, it's interesting. Even if you don't believe the gossip, if you listen to it, it's still on your mind. And you may not believe it. Maybe you don't believe when you hear about some somebody. Somebody gets slandered and you hear that that they're doing something or that they have a sin pattern in a particular area. All right. Which really makes no difference because we're all sinners saved by grace. But you hear that somebody has a sin pattern in a particular area. And maybe you believe it, maybe you don't. But you're listening to the gossip. And it's in your thinking. 
And down the road, something happens and you go, ah, how about that? They are such and such. Because your mind was listening to that gossip and it's the first thing that springs to your mind. It wouldn't otherwise, had you not been listening to the gossip, wouldn't have crossed your mind that way. But by listening to the gossip, you're thinking, ah. And then something happens, you go, ah, proof. You just validate the gossip. So here they are, thinking that the uh, charge of demonism has been validated. All right, we will uh, come back next week and deal with the rest of this. Uh, We will then move on and look at how he rebukes them. He says, I did one deed and you all marvel for this reason. And he goes back to the last time he was in Jerusalem in John chapter 5. He healed a man by the pool. Got up and walked home carrying his pallet. And they all pointed and said, you can't carry that. It's the Sabbath. And he said, well, the guy who healed me told me to. See, if you're obeying God, is that sin? He said, well, you're breaking the Sabbath. No, I'm obeying the God of the Sabbath. And he told me to do this. So Jesus is going to use that. He says, you didn't learn that lesson last time. You're still not learning it this time. And so we're going to have to combine chapter 5 with chapter 7. Not only is chapter 7 pretty long, taking us all the way down through verse 52, but it's going to incorporate um, about 9 or 10 verses out of back from chapter 5. We're going to have to remind ourselves what that Sabbath healing was all about with that man on the pallet by the, uh, the pool of Bethesda. So we'll have that coming up again next week. Let's close with prayer. Father, we thank you for this day and the time you provided us. We thank you for your faithfulness. And, and Father, reading this text, it's almost like it's, it's written in, in 2008 America, Father. It's almost modern the way that uh, we see the, uh, the, the mental attitudes of, of pride and self-righteousness and all the things. Father, it's just a reminder again that there's nothing new under the sun. What we see today is the attitudes that fallen humanity have, have always been in pursuit of. So, Father, I pray that we would learn these lessons. We would see how our Lord uh, dealt with them, how he interacted in a world of, uh, of opposition to your truth and your purpose, how he stood fast under your teaching and confronted the uh, evil when he faced it. And I pray that we would be equipped as well to stand in our generation and accomplish that for which you have sent us. And I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.